you're better off trying to put in the bank before you take out of the bank. And, and I mean that with other people. So, you know, I think, uh, you know, I was probably quite driven when I was younger as well, and I was very comfortable going to ask people to do me favours and get stuff done and achieve stuff. And what I realised was I needed to offer that for others first. So if I had the opportunity to go back, I'd say to Glenn, mate, you know, help others first. Then when you really need a hand, they'll be there. My name's Andrew Lee, and welcome to The Good Life, a podcast about living a happy, healthy, and ethical life. Although I'm a politician and an economist, this isn't a podcast about politics or economics. It's about living a good life, which is an idea that goes back to the Greek philosopher Aristotle. What Aristotle meant by a good life was the life that one would like to live, a life with pleasure, meaning, and richness of spirit, the life that most of us were trying to live until everything else got in the way. In this podcast, I'll seek out guests, not because they're smart, but because they're wise. I'll speak with writers, athletes, and social justice campaigners, with people who've been lucky and those who've experienced hard times. I've found their stories fascinating, and I hope you do too. Every time I've seen him, Glenn Keyes has a smile on his face. Whether it's helping out a local charity, flying to Africa, or enjoying a quiet moment with his wife Mel, Glenn's capacity to always look relaxed always impresses me. And that's because I know that, like a proverbial duck, he must be paddling furiously under the surface as a business person and philanthropist. Thirteen years ago, Glenn founded a company called Aspen Medical with his friend Andrew Walker. Aspen now employs several thousand staff, and in 2008 helped evacuate Timorese President Jose Ramos Horta after an attempted assassination. More recently, Aspen was at the heart of the global response to Ebola in West Africa. Glenn's also involved in a number of charities, particularly around people with disabilities. Through the Aspen Foundation and Project Independence, he takes corporate philanthropy seriously. In 2015, he was awarded the ACT Australian of the Year. Glenn, welcome to The Good Life. Thanks very much, Andrew. Now, you weren't always involved in business, were you? You started off your career in the military. That's right. I did uh, engineering in the military and I was uh, uh, in the army for 15 years. What did you do? I, uh, I went through Duntroon here in Canberra. I did mechanical engineering and then I just was lucky to get picked up to go to England to do aeronautical engineering. So I did that uh, with the British Army and then a few years later I went back to England to go to test pilot school where I did flight test engineering, which is the engineering equivalent of a test pilot. So you don't go up in the plane, but you uh, you get to you get to get the planes ready. Oh no no no! You go up in the plane. You go up in the plane, and your job is to have all of the flight test schedule, what the parameters are, usually doing the data recording, and you direct the pilot on what's going to happen, and gather the data, and you will develop the program together. But it's your job then to sit down and crunch the data and work out where you go from there. Sounds like the dream job for most teenage boys. Uh, is that is that how you how you found it? Oh, absolutely. It was a fantastic job. I enjoyed it so much because we were doing stuff with aeroplanes because they had problems. So whether they had problems with takeoff and landing or they had problems with controls or you wanted to bring in a brand new bit of kit that had never been on that aircraft. So we did stuff with F-18s, Mackies, Blackhawks, P-3 Orions, Nomads, all sorts of stuff. And around the world too. I was test flying Nomads in New Guinea and and it was just, it was a great job because you were working with the very, very best pilots doing work that no one had done before. And uh, it was a hoot. So what made you give it up? Um, oh, well, I, as the postings always happen within the military, you get rotated around. So I'd had a great time there. I then got posted into um, what was the engineering control, if you like, for Army aircraft which was, again, a great experience. We were deploying to Cambodia and part of the peacekeeping mission, and we had to sort out our helicopters to make sure they were safe and they had all of the right safety gear and we had chaff and flare being fitted and all sorts of stuff being done really quickly, which was very exciting. Um, and then uh, that job, the whole unit moved to Toowoomba, so we went to Queensland, and then my next job was to uh, be posted to Tyndall in uh, Central Northern Territory again with the military 
and um, my wife and I have a son with an intellectual disability and we just said yeah we're not we're not going there and even though it would have been great for my career and, and I would have had a great time I realized that you know suddenly family were going to be significantly more important than that aspect of my career. So we will come back to talk about Aaron and uh, some of the impact that he's had in your life but then that uh, that change uh, did, did you move straight to starting Aspen or did you work in the field uh, for, for some period? No, I, I left um, uh, Defence and then I managed to get a job before I'd even uh, left uh, So we, and that was placed in Canberra and that was a startup. So it was uh, Aerospace Technical Services and our job was to do the sorts of outsourcing that was just starting to happen about 20 years ago with government. Mm -hmm. Uh, where we did engineering outsourcing. We designed night vision goggle fit-outs for aircraft. Um, we did engineering testing. We did all the flight data recorders in military aircraft. So I was brought in to kick that business off and started that in Canberra. And we grew it to about 80 people with three offices across Australia, so Sydney, Adelaide and Canberra. And then we sold out to a, a very large US defence multinational. And I worked for them for a little while and then thought, yeah, maybe this is not what I want to do. I'm not comfortable with this career option. And, um, and my best friend who I'd known since school, uh, he and I were talking about an opportunity and that's when we started Aspen. So when you said you weren't comfortable with this, uh, this career path, is that because you wanted to be in control or because you wanted to start something new? Uh, actually, neither of those. It was okay. um, to get ahead, I was going to have to take a, a rotation overseas to Washington. And as much as I love Washington, and I love, I've had a lot of postings overseas, so I've enjoyed that, it just didn't suit where we were. We had three children by then, you know, what were we were going to do, we didn't want to be moving. Um, I also realised that in that large US multinational, you've got to have a degree of careerism. So you've got to be picking things that are good for you rather than good for the people around you or, or even good for the business you're in. Mm. And I'm very uncomfortable with that. And then the final aspect was um, what we did, which was part of one of the things we did, and they're a US defence multinational, so they do lots and lots of stuff. One of the things they did was sell missiles. And uh, my wife and I can see it as clear as day. We're uh, in bed watching the news that night, and they've announced there's the first Gulf War is on. And um, they said, right, you know, George Bush has said they're going in, and of course it takes forever to mobilise that many people. And they were cycling through all the things that were going to happen. And one of them was all the different types of missiles that were going to be used. And they were cycling through and said, you know, these are manufactured by this company, these are manufactured by this mm. company. And a lot of them were manufactured by the company I was working for. And it got to the end of the news and I turned it off to go to bed. And my wife said, how do you feel about that? I said, you know what? I'm not, I'm not happy. And I wasn't. I wasn't comfortable. With, that's how I was making money in it resonated with, with a book that had been given to me not long beforehand, which is by the Dalai Lama, who was talking about when he visited uh, Bergen-Belsen in Germany. And um, all the bricks in the buildings in Bergen-Belsen, which are still there, have all got a ring mark in them from the brickmaker who made the brick. And so he would have his special mark on a ring, make the bricks, and he'd put the mark in mm, the bricks. Mm. And... So obviously he's very proud of his work. And the Dalai Lama is standing there and he's touching these bricks and feeling the individual brickmaker's rings. And he said, uh, he's so proud of his work. Did he know that he would be making furnaces? Would he be proud of his work if he knew that's what he'd achieved? Mm. And he said, I, I don't think he would, but it would be interesting to ask him. And, you know, that was sort of resonating in the back of my head. And I saw this and I thought, I'm not sure that's where I want to be. So um, an opportunity came up with Andrew to start Aspen and it was a great opportunity to get away from something, you know, that's a critical business but not something I was comfortable in to a business where I felt that we were delivering care to people who really, really needed it by a group of people who could do jobs that others couldn't. So that's what, that was what the, the, where the change came from. So I want to move on to, uh, to Aspen's evolution in just a moment. But let me press you a little on the missiles question because you had come out of 15 years in the military working on Australian planes, which presumably in some cases uh, were carrying missiles or bombs. How was it different to be 
working for the manufacturer rather than being part of an organisation which would sometimes uh, fire, fire those missiles? The sort of businesses that we're both in, and I was in then, is about service. And so even the stuff that I now do philanthropically is around service to others. And I had always seen myself in the military, and I still do for those in the military, as a commitment to service. So it's just a commitment to others. Mm. Um, and, you know, and, and uh, I'm sure you've heard people run down politicians occasionally. And I don't think we appreciate the fact that that's a commitment to service. I mean, you could be away making a lot more money than you're making now as a politician, but you do it for all the right reasons. And if you look across the vast majority of politicians, they're there because they're committed to others. And so I saw my time in the military as a commitment to service to others. I could have made more money as an engineer elsewhere, but where you make your money mm. is a thing I think that's important. And so making, uh, committing that service by being in the military and going where you were told and what you had to do, that seemed the right thing to do. And And... My father had been in the military, my grandfather was in the First Light Horse twice, uh, every one of my dad's brothers had been in the military, so there was a very strong sense of that mm. service and mm. commitment. But to be making money out of it, that, that I felt uncomfortable with. So that, you know, I, you may say it's a tad too nuanced, but I do think that there was a clear difference for me uh, around that. So the opportunity to to not make my money from selling missiles and make my money from doing something else. That was important to me. And now tell me about the first uh, few uh, months of, uh, of Aspen Medical. What was it like as a, as a startup? What, are you, uh, what would you do differently if you're going, ba going back there now? So to start Aspen, and so uh, Andrew and I, my business partner Andrew Wolf and I, have known each other since school. And um, uh, Andrew's a brilliant doctor and, and just incredibly intuitive as a doctor. Um, annoyingly, he's also incredibly intuitive as a businessman. So you can flick through a set of financials and pick a figure in a heartbeat and get to the nub of an issue. Mm. Um, I think logistics, operationally, and sales are my strength. So between us, you know, it, it's actually been a, a perfect union for the delivery of the business. And that's been really, really great to work with Andrew. But when we started, we had this idea that, yes, there were opportunities initially in England uh, because of the surgery waiting list work that Tony Blair was doing. But we said, you know, we've really got to get out and sell. So we made a bunch of meetings in Australia and around the world and went on a three-week trip gathering opportunities in business. And we did that in England, in Europe and in the States, came home and we effectively had about four or five contracts by the time we returned. Some were very small, some were nascent and took a while to grow, but there were real opportunities. If I could have my time again, there'd be a couple of those I would walk a million miles from because we were we were just grabbing every fish that leapt up thinking that they were all going to taste good. And you know what? Some of them were, were, were dogs. They were not good tasting fish at all. And they consumed a lot of time and effort that was the wrong thing to do. But at the time, we were just going, we get a contract, we're going to grab everything we can, we're going to put it on the list and move forward. And so, you know, I always tell our people, you've got to be hungry, you've got to chase the business. But if there's one thing I've learned since then, it's discerning what's the right business to grab. Saying no really is one of those big challenges in life, isn't it? Uh, working out what uh, what opportunity, what speaking opportunities to turn down, what uh, what, what uh, opportunities to to meet people to turn down, just in order to create that space to do the th the things that you love and you know that'll matter. Yeah, uh, look, it is, and um, I I hate losing. I, I hate losing a contract. There's no contract for coming second. Um, particularly if you genuinely think you could do it better than somebody else. Mm, mm. So I hate losing there. Also hate wasted effort, you know, the opportunity cost of what that meant that you could have been doing elsewhere. So I'm pretty competitive about those sort of things. But, yeah, I've walked away from contracts very early on and some after we've won them that, uh, you know, there was one that we won that was in Afghanistan and we'd spent two years winning this contract and a lot of money to get there. And uh, so now we'd won it. They invited us in for the site survey. And uh, my guy came back and said uh, they are not looking after their locals appropriately. Their vehicles aren't uh, secured. They're not safe. Uh, and they've actually got quite a number of deaths of their Afghani drivers. And uh, he said, you know, I'm, I'm genuinely concerned as to the safety of our people. Mm. So he and I spent about four or five hours on the phone, reading reports, going over everything. Um, 
And I said, well, we're not going to do this. Because I don't need money so bad that I want to be woken at four in the morning because one of our staff has been killed or kidnapped in an environment that I knew was high risk. Yes. So we walked away. Um, and we've done that on contract. And that's hard to do. But that's why you get to sit in the big chair to make those calls around what's the right thing and the wrong thing to do. And understanding where that line is in the sand and not just even creeping over it a bit because what looks really attractive on the other side, that's a hard call. But you've got to do that. Have you regretted many of the contracts that you've turned down? under It certainly sounds as though you didn't regret the Afghanistan one. No, I've not regretted one of the contracts we've turned down. Not one. That's very interesting. So a couple of I've regretted for picking up, not because they were ethically challenging, Mm. uh, just because we didn't discern the risks that lived inside some of them, but honestly, not many. You know, Mm. there's been very few um, where we've uh, lost money. Um, There's a couple where we broke even, where there's stuff we didn't quite understand in the risk, but there's not one that, that I wish we'd kept that we gave away. We have... You know, I won't say which particular country, but there was a country we were doing a lot of work to set up a clinic in, and it had taken us a lot of time. And if you work in challenging environments, you get that. Anyway, I started to get calls saying, oh, the guys who want the license prints wants $50 to print the license. I said, well, is that a fee? Do you get a receipt? No, no, no. He said he wants to buy paper. I said, great. Take him a ream of paper, but you're not paying him 50 bucks." And he said, well, why not? And I said, because this is very evidently a bribe. And I said, if we pay $50, tomorrow we'll pay 100 and then next week we'll pay 1000 And I said, once you're over that line, have you, how do you ever walk back? Mm. So we ended up closing that clinic and we left that country and we haven't done work there since then because we were very, very clear where we stood ethically. We were there delivering the sort of work that I want to be able to stand up in front of 60 minutes or walk into somebody on the road and keep our head high because we have met every one of the the values that I tell people we espouse. It's incredibly important to be able to not only make the right decisions but also to uh, to have that sense that you're doing what you what you were meant to be doing in the in the in the world. Uh, it's interesting you spoke before about careerism within within uh, large organisations and the risk that you need to think about your own career more than how you serve the organisation. Uh, do you? How, how have you tried to inculcate a set of values within Aspen so that staff are more concerned about what they're doing for the organisation than what they're doing for themselves? Um, you know, we started very, very early on. It was something that I brought from a previous company. There are no BCCs between staff and myself. So if someone's got a beef with someone else, they can sort it out. If they want me to know about it, they're welcome to bring me in and I'll try to resolve it. But if someone BCCs me because they're sending a shirty email back to someone else and they want me to see what's going on without the other person knowing, that speaks more of the person sending the email. And so I've had it happen once. The company was very young, or probably only two years old. And I pulled all of the exec into the room and I said, this has happened. It will never happen again. So let's be absolutely clear. If someone BCCs me because they think they're trying to score points on another person, you'll be fired straight away because that's not what we're going to do. If you've got a beef, you resolve it. I agree there are times where you can't. You will come to me and I will be sad that you can't resolve this. And then we will work out an answer. But once I've decided what the answer is, you will absolutely live by it. So does anybody under any doubt? Because if you're under any doubt now, you need to leave. And I've never had another BCC since then in 14 years. I've never heard of the BCC as a firing offence before. It's a a fascinating notion, but it does have that passive-aggressive element uh, to it, which uh, I can see how it become corrosive for an organisation. How have you managed your family life in in amidst uh, running such a big and and rapidly growing firm? I've managed it because I've got an amazing wife that you mentioned before. Mel has been incredibly supportive in what I've done and has borne a genuinely unfair load, if I now look at it honestly. You know, I I love what I do. I I love growing the company. I love the work we deliver. I love winning that business and delivering a contract that people think was, you know, beyond belief. So I really enjoy that. 
but we've had three kids, one with an intellectual disability, uh, like everyone's children, they're all different, they all have different needs, Mel's got stuff to do as well, and she has carried uh, a load well beyond my load. So, you know, I, I must admit the way I, I think about that sort of question is that I don't think the question ought to be asked of me, I think it ought to be asked of Mel, because right. she's carried that, not me. There's a uh, there's a list for our fu- for our future guests, <laughs> uh, and uh, you've had a huge amount of. Uh, uh, I mean, your 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 work is has a sort of crisis element to it. I mentioned before the evacuation of Jose Ramos Horta in two thousand and eight, um, the Ebola response as well. How do you create systems where you're able to react quickly? but without ramping up the stress in the organisation and ending up with people shouting at one another and not getting any sleep at night and that kind of thing? Well, um, it's the quality of the people we hire. We've got the right people who respect each other, who support each other in that delivery. And we're all very, very clear what the aim is. I do think this is challenging in today's environment. You know, we're all so busy. Our attention span is so short, uh, you know, driving up here, I noticed the guy didn't pull away at the lights fast enough, so somebody was on the horn, you know, it's literally a second or two for the lights, you know, we've all got to breathe a little more. (laughs) So, you know, getting those people to say, okay, I understand what that outcome is, because we've been really clear about it. We try to strip away all that extraneous information, all that dross we hear of every day, that, that stuff that distracts us, and say, that is the one thing, that that's what we've got to achieve. We have to open the Ebola clinic with all of our people safe in five weeks. That's the target. And then everybody else falls in line because you know what the target is and we're all working towards it. And we're not sitting there saying, well, Andrew, I need you to do this and Glenn, I need you to do this because we're sitting around going, right, what what do you need me to do? What can I do to help? Maybe I've noticed I could do this and this mm, and this. Mm. I'll crack on and get that done. I, I often tell people in 14 years I've never asked anyone to work late because, you know, we've often said to people, like even the receptionist, you know, we're working on a tender and they're going, you really should go home. No, 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 it's all right. I've sent a message to my husband. He'll look after the kids at breakfast and go, it's five o'clock in the morning. Go home, you know, have a shower. No, I just want to stay here till I know the tender's perimeter. I want to be here until I know that we've found that person. So, you know, on some nights there'll be, a couple of people sitting in the project teams coordinating a specialist that we need to go somewhere because no one will leave till they get that right. So that commitment by the individuals to that very clear aim, mm. and I think it's, you know, you said before about the company, it's not so much about the company, it's about the aim. We want to make sure that we've saved Romus Water's life. We want to make sure that, uh, that the Ebola clinic is set up and everybody's safe. We want to make sure that our staff in the Solomon Islands have got all the equipment they need. So it's almost like you don't have to ask because they're doing it already. How do you select for, for that calmness under pressure in staff, staff members? It's not as though you can... Simu- stress isn't something you can simulate easy, easily in a job interview, but uh, that sense of poise seems like it's pretty important for you in your hiring process. Oh, it's absolutely critical. A lot of it comes out of personal references. Um, and also our structure allows us to bring people up from the bottom. Mm. So if I look at our chief of staff now, uh, he's an ED nurse, aeromedical evacuation nurse. Uh, he started out on our very first rotation into the Solomon Islands 12 and a half years ago uh, as a nurse. Uh, really good, did a great job, stepped up into the deputy slot, which was a vacancy for a while, and I happened to be up there on the day that we had... Um, guy who broke his leg, that guy got brought in, we treated him, he was sitting outside in the sun, got bitten by a bee, went into anaphylactic shock. We've got him in being treated. We had uh, three local children who'd cracked open batteries and breathed in all the fumes, so we had them we were treating. woman who'd slipped off a boat and broken a back, we were treating her. And this guy was not running, he was not yelling, wasn't raising, he was just walking around with quiet industry. He'd walk, he's walking quickly and purposefully, but he'd go, right, I need you to do this right now. You know, grabs the dentist, right, I need you to come in. I want you to keep this guy's airways clear while I get this. So we had someone in surgery, someone on the ED table, a team would be deployed in the aircraft to go and get people. And he just quietly wandered around. And I went, this guy's great. 
Yeah. So when we had an opportunity for a position in Australia, you know, we said, this job's coming up. Would you like to apply? He was the guy who got it. And he's now moved up. He was the head of operations and now he's the chief of staff. And so we've promoted internally because you can see people as they grow. And now people filter out too. You go, you're great at that level, but not that next one. The other thing that comes is a lot of references. So you you would know a lot of people. If I said, I really need someone who's fantastic on economics, who knows how to present it in a real clear fashion that someone would understand who's not you, you would say, right, well, I do know mm, mm. these couple of people and I think they're the best that I know. We do the same thing. So a lot of our references come from the people, the good people we've got, because good people don't recommend bad people. They recommend good people. And so that's been a growth for us that's allowed us to grow from me in my dining room 14 years ago to 1,500 people today. And what have you learned from working in those more stressful environments? Uh, presumably there's a lot of other things that you put on hold when you're responding to Ebola. Uh, does that, uh, when, you, when things return to normal, did you find that the processes had impro- improved in, uh, in certain ways? You discovered that some of the work you'd been doing beforehand actually wasn't as important as you thought, thought it was? Uh, oh, yeah, it does, because I'm my own worst enemy there, because I'm going to take on 17 things when I have time for 12. Um, and so you realise that those few that you put aside or dropped weren't that important, it mm. didn't really matter. Um, but you also get to see who picks stuff up, who isn't involved, who will pick those things up and continue along with those as mm. well in the background. So, yeah, it does allow you to discern, you know, to look through that and go, you know what, I thought that was really exciting and interesting, but that's not that important. These things are really critical. So, yeah, it does work in that sense. What do you do to try and make sure you're a better manager in five years' time than you are today? Um, I think it's really, really important to admit that you always have stuff to learn and the stuff you have to learn comes from everybody. So, you know, just... I've been around a lot of our sites in the last six months doing events, talking to people and stuff. And it's really interesting to learn those lessons, to take those things away that people talk about that that are really important about what we're doing right or wrong. Um, You know, we're always, uh, from a competitive point of view, always sit there and bag the opposition. I know you don't normally do that, Andrew, but others might. (laughs) But, But one thing I always try to lead on is so if we're talking about someone who's worked with a competing company or is about to be hired by a competing company and I go you know they're a pretty good company what mm. what have you found that's gone really well mm. what, what have you what have you liked about it or when you work for them what was really really good and and that's normally a little disarming for people because they think you're going to try and slam them but if you sit there and go what's good they'll go well you know they're very very good at a b and c well, if they're really good at A, B, and C, maybe we should be that good at that too. And maybe that's a lesson to learn. Even if it's only to find out what was important to that individual, that A, B, and C were important to them. Yes. And you go, wow, that's not a really specky thing. But if they, they think that's important, I should think about that yeah. too. The other thing I do a lot of is reading. And uh, um, I can normally tell what level of stress I'm in is what my, my reading level is in. So if I'm... Uh, if I'm pretty good and things are cruising along, I'm reading a book. I've got one at the moment called Hooked, which is about product development and what makes a product catchy, be it mm-hmm. on the net or something else. So that's a really interesting book. It's a heavy read. Um, I've just finished a book on uh, the Founding Brothers, which is a uh, Pulitzer Prize winner on the, uh, uh, the what were the Founding Fathers. Yeah. And, and yeah. does the Inspi- seven inspired, chapters. Inspired Hamilton. Yeah, well, it's one of the chapters, yes, because the very first chapter is on the duel, Hamilton's duel yeah. with, with Aaron Burr. But it goes through a number of other chapters. Some of them don't involve Burr. But that's that's a really interesting read. Um, but I know that right now there's been a lot of work on, a lot of stress, and I've not picked up Hooked at all because it's just been too heavy. Um, so I, I'll pick up, you know, a, a fiction book to read that because that's easier. Mm. And then, to be honest, if I'm really stressed and exhausted, I actually have always loved reading comics. So I'll have a couple of comics there and I can pick those up. And they're, you know, they're sort of modern day versions, challenging, you know, comics. And I'll read those and that's good. And then if I'm really, really, really tired, the best I can do is television. And I just have to sit there and it, I don't have to consume it. It just washes over me. <laughs> so I can always, I can self-diagnose my level of stress depending yes. on, on what my, uh, my intellectual material is at at the time. 
Well, let's stay in the home environment. Tell us what it's been like uh, raising your, your son, Aaron. Um, when did you find out he had Down syndrome and, uh, and how's, how's that been for your family? Um, we found out about 45 minutes after he was born. Um, and uh, we'd had our first child was a daughter who's just fantastic and she's a great kid and we're so proud of what she does. But I've also had a strong sense of family history. So um, a child that would pass on a key's name perhaps into the future was interesting to me. And um, out of my entire generation uh, of my dad had seven brothers and two sisters, there are no keys beyond my generation. And so that sort of was something that I thought would be great to have another key. And so when he was born, this is before mobiles, I had a big pile of change, ran out, phoned everybody, had my list, told them how excited I was, we had a son, blah, blah, blah. And then I came in and the nurse had obviously detected that he had Down syndrome and told the doc and then the doc pulled Mel and I aside and told us. And I just had no idea. I'd never really had any interaction with anyone with Down syndrome before. One boy who'd lived uh, near us when I was growing up, but I had no interaction with him. And I was just devastated. And I didn't know what this would mean. And of course, your mind runs forward to I'm 70 and I'm about to die and what's going to happen to him. And um, so I found that really hard. So then I had to walk back out and phone everybody and tell them all that Aaron had an intellectual disability and I didn't know what it meant. And, you know, he had his challenges. He had a few holes in his heart that we had to monitor. And he had um, he had some issues with his spine. And, you know, so he had a range of things we had to deal with. Uh, but um, very, very lucky. Mel's a social worker. So she was able to sort of give me a bit of guidance and give me a bunch of books to read. And uh, one of the books that was most helpful, I still remember, is... Uh, a book with the yellow cover by Stefan Esky on Down syndrome. And I'm a big lover of quotes. And there was quotes at the top of every chapter. And the one that resonated was one that said, uh, you know, when my um, son was born, everybody said congratulations. Fantastic. It's really excited for you. It's brilliant. When my daughter was born, everybody said, oh, my God. You know, they could have axial mental instability and they could have issues with their thyroid and, you know, they die young. And everybody went through every, everything that was negative. And he said, so when my other daughter was born, who didn't have a disability, everyone congratulated me. Nobody said, oh, my God, you should realise she might run off with a biker. She could be a teenage pregnancy. She could get on drugs. Nobody talks to the negatives when you have a child without a disability. They only talk to the negatives of when you have a child with a disability. And so I thought, that's really important because we've now got two children without disabilities. And and what it's meant is now I now think of all the positive things for Aaron. Yes. And he's been able to achieve so much. He was the first boy to graduate from Marist College in Canberra. Um, he did a certificate three in business. He works four days a week. Got a fantastic circle of friends. He does sport and dancing every week. He's got a, a rich life. So that's been good, but that, that initial shock uh, was really hard to do, particularly someone who, and I've admitted, reasonably competitive and want to achieve, and, you know, this was just completely out of where I was thinking and what I thought was going to happen. So that was hard, but honestly, I am in a significantly better person because of Aaron and because of the community that he's introduced me to. So the disability community, and particularly the intellectual disability community, is just fantastic. And I'm, I'm, I'm just so much a better person because of it. How, talk, talk more about that. Does it make you more patient or more empathetic? What are, what are the skills? How, how is Glenn Keyes different as a result of, of Aaron being in the world? Um, I think first up, I am extremely happy. So on a very personal level, I'm extremely happy for every single success, every single success. And I think without Aaron, I think the other kids might have found life a little more challenging because I think I might have been far more demanding on them about what to achieve and what to do. Whereas now I'm happy they're happy, right? And, and that's an important thing. So I think it, it tempered my competitiveness perhaps and my desire for them to achieve even more. Um, I think it made me appreciate what I am. Uh, I have won the lottery a dozen times over um, and to all the things that we're trying to correct in our society, but I am white, male, 
English speaking, with my health, well educated, uh, happily married with a loving family, living in Australia, living in Canberra, and my own business. I've like won the lottery 10 times. <laughs> no? That's, you know, that's unbelievable. And it, so it's made me appreciate what an incredible lottery I've won to, to be all of those things. So if I don't give something back because of that, honestly, I deserve a bit of a slapping. So that's led me perhaps to think outside of myself and to try to see what else I can do to benefit those who sometimes have got absolutely none of those benefits that I mentioned, but even just a, might only have one or two. You know, you live in Canberra, but you don't have any of those others. You know, not a lot of lottery prizes going on there. So doing something to help has been important. So tell us about Project Independence. So Project Independence is something that started about six years ago. And it started because it um, came out of actually the stimulus budget money in 08. Um, and I know a lot of people focus on classrooms and stuff that were built. There were so many good projects that were done that nobody talks about. And one of them is here in Canberra called Ross Walker Lodge in the north of Canberra. And it's a social housing project built on a church land uh, for people with an intellectual disability. And it's really nice. I mean, they're studio apartments. They'll take a double or a queen-size bed. They have their own ensuite, their own courtyard, a little kitchenette. And there's six people in a complex. And they have a resident coordinator who cleans and cooks a meal for them once a day, which is dinner. And they've got common rooms and stuff. And it's fantastic. And uh, a friend of Aaron's moved in. And they were having a birthday party. And I went over to help. Of course, at any birthday party, you get rostered on for a job. So I'm cooking sausages. And, uh, and this uh, young gentleman came around and said, would you like to see my apartment? I said, love to. So he went around. And I'm looking around going, this is really nice. This could be good for Aaron. So I went back and, and cooking sausage, having a beer. And I got chatting to one of the directors. I said, this place is nice. He goes, yeah, we're really happy. I said, how many people? He said, six. I said, do you have many people on the waiting list? He said, we have dozens and dozens and dozens on the waiting list. And so by about the third beer and the second sausage, I went, you know what? We need to build some of these. That'd be a great <laughs> idea. And one of the other fathers who was there is a project manager and uh, um, the father of the boy who was living there is a guy who does policies and procedures. And they said, sure, happy to be involved and crack on. Uh, so I started to look and I know nothing about housing development. I knew nothing about disability accommodation. Absolutely, it was a blank sheet, which was probably quite helpful because I had no preconceptions on what it should look like. Mm. And I'm very lucky because Aspen takes me to other places. So, you know, I went to Denmark and they have co-housing. Um, so I managed to, you know, find an article about co-housing and I read about it. It was invented in Denmark in the 60s. Um, and then, you know, I am a bit of a believer in fate. I'm in Canada and I get on this tiny little plane uh, and someone's folded up a newspaper and shoved it in the thing in front of me and I pulled it out. And the article on the front page is about this new cow housing project for aged care uh, in Canada. And so I'm really interested in these models and I start to get... So I start to think about a co-housing social model. And then we'd just built a new house here in Canberra and we were moving in. And I said to Aaron, mate, can you give me a hand to unpack some boxes? And he said, I can't, Dad. I'm really busy. I said, really? So busy you can't unpack a box? What are you doing? And he said, oh, I'm designing the house that I want to buy when I leave home. And it was just like a slap in the face. Because I thought, holy dooly, it's a great Australian dream to own your own home. Uh, I want to own my own home. All my other kids do. Why wouldn't Aaron? Why wouldn't a person with an intellectual disability want the same thing? And when you look around, a lot of options are group homes. And group homes are not dissimilar to what we would have gone through when we left school or went to university, which is three, four people sharing a house, sharing the same kitchen, toilet, shower, yes. bathroom, lounge room, as the rest of the people. Now, that's okay when you're 19, 20, 25, or when you're 35, 45. 55? Is that how you want to be living? Particularly if those other two, three, four people in the house are not people you picked. Mm. These are not friends that you went and decided to go share with. They were just rostered into there. So I walked back in and by now we'd been going a couple of years sort of looking at models and I walked back into the, to the board of directors, just three of us, and I said, uh, right, 
got to change the model. We have to change the model so they can buy it out of there, buy it themselves. And uh, um, one of the directors said, well, you know, the bulk of them are on the disability support pension, so you'd have to have them buy it out of that. And I went, okay, they can pay for it out of that. Because you realise what the disability support pension is. It's not a lot. And I said, well, I'm sure we can make this work. So it took us four years. We worked with one of the big core accounting firms who did a lot of work at cost, which was Ernst & Young, did a great job. Um, and uh, we managed to develop a financial model where they can buy their own home out of their pension. They put down a 10% deposit. They pay 75% of their pension, which is the legislated amount. Uh, and then when they're ready to sell and move on, we sell on their behalf to another person like them wanting to come in and own their own home. Yeah. They get back all the equity they've paid in plus a percentage of the capital growth. And so what I've tried to do is we've set this up as a social business and I've taken a lot of the rules I've learned out of the business community and applied them to this model mm. to make it work. And what's exciting is we've done 20 units here in Canberra. We've got land for a third set of units, which we're, we've raised $1.4 million of $2 million to build on. Um, but what's really interesting is we've got a dozen sites around Australia that want us to build there as well. And then we've already had two inquiries out of the US. So, uh, you know, we're now looking at turning it into a social business franchise so that, not that we make money out of it, so that we can provide to everybody all the documentation, all the financials, all the legals. You know, Maya Vandenberg here have done all the legals for us. They've just done an amazing job. We provide them every document. But we've got oversight so that if things start to go off the rails, we have step-in rights. We can help do course correction, but step in if there's a problem. But we also have a learning environment where they get together once a year and we all swap what we've learned and what we could do better to make the model better. So I'm really excited because it would appear to be the only home ownership model like it that we've come across in the world. And we started here in Canberra. You sound as if not more proud of Project Independence than of Aspen Medical. Oh, look, it's... Uh, it's like asking you to compare your children, I know. Yeah, exactly. Don't do that. That's hard because, you know, I've given birth to both of them. and it's. Uh, <laughs> but it is, it's a wonderful thing. It is a wonderful thing to see the residents moving into the house. You know, we've got uh, Lee is 58. Lee's lived in a group home for 30 years. He never, ever thought he would own his own home. And when we were showing him, he said, so cool. You know what I get to do yesterday? I said, what, Lee? He said, I picked my own curtains. That's great. He goes, I'm excited because I'll get to lock my door at night. And this is not something that you would think would be, you know, something that you should ask for. That's a right to lock your own door and feel that security. But for him, this was something exceptional. And uh, what was funny was we'd asked him to speak at the opening of the one of the accommodation sites at, uh, at Latham. And uh, went and bought himself a nice suit to do that. Anyway, I was talking to his carer and I said, uh, you know, you're happy to organise to look after him. And she said, uh, you know, now he's got two suits and a jacket. And he rings me and says, do you think the blue shirt goes with that jacket? I said, oh, it's really nice. She said, no, you don't understand. For 58 years, he hasn't cared about his appearance. But now he is over the moon about his appearance and how he presents. His confidence has gone through the roof. It's not something that we'd ever thought of as a natural byproduct. But it is. He's excited about himself and what he can do and what his ownership is. So it's cool. I helped open Ross Walker Lodge, and I remember the, the the expressions on people's faces as they took the keys to their apartments. It was it was a pretty special day. It is, isn't it? And it's it's those things that perhaps so many of us take for granted. I think yeah. that's what I've got out of Aaron and the involvement in all of this is is the things that we take for granted. Some of them are so small, you know, the mm. ability, the chance to pick the curtains in your room, the chance to lock your door. You know, these are things that we take for granted and yet are so important. And, and yeah, it's very grounding. So, Glenn, let me ask you a couple of standard questions to, uh, to wrap up. Sure. Um, what advice would you give to your teenage self? Um, you know, that's a really good question. And I think the thing that I learned, and it probably took me till my mid-30s to learn it, is that uh, you're better off trying to put in the bank before you take out of the bank. And, and I mean that with other people. 
So, you know, I think, uh, you know, I was probably quite driven when I was younger as well, and I was very comfortable going and ask people to do me favours and get stuff done and achieve stuff. And what I realised was I needed to offer that for others first. So if I had the opportunity to go back, I'd say to Glenn, mate, you know, help others first. Then when you really need a hand, they'll be there. But, uh, you know, put put in the bank first before you need to take out. What's something you used to believe but no longer do? Um, you know, I don't want to sound cynical in regards to this, but... It was, you know, he spoke about it a little with the careerism before, but I had thought that people would always make decisions because they were the right decisions. In a broader context, in a context of the community or your family, um, and I suppose I'd, I had not really, because of my parents and my family I was brought up in, seen self-interest exhibited. And I've seen self-interest exhibited in business and, and, you know, in a broader community politics sense, that I find a bit sad. So I'd sort of believe that people would make the right decision, even if it didn't always benefit them. And sadly, I think I'm wrong. But it is interesting how sometimes it can be uh, quite a clarifying way of working out what your role should be. I mean, I certainly find within a political context, thinking not about uh, what do I want to get out of this, but... Uh, within this room, what are what what's the what's the role that I ought to be playing? Uh, often, just it, it becomes immediately obvious what is the, the what, what's what's the contribution you should be making to a conversation uh, if you think uh, not just about yourself but about the entire room and your role in it. And I think there are people in in all colours of politics who do that, you know, and and you know it's not owned by one party or one community group or one strata of society. Um, but there are people in all of those categories I mentioned before who don't do that. Mm. And I suppose that, that's been a bit hard to come to terms with. But if you know it and you can deal with it and you don't let it eat away at you, then, you know, you can find a way to get around it. But, you know, there are times where I go home and, you know, you just sort of proverbially not actually kick the cat because you go, I can't believe they did that. It's such a negative thing to do, but people still do it. But yeah. not everybody, you know. And I, certainly I found with things like Project Independence and stuff and the work I've done with the, the NDIS and stuff with the Down Syndrome Association of Special Olympics, the people who do step up and offer are incredible. Canberra's a great place for that. Yes, yes. I suppose an economist would just sum up that advice as uh, play to your comparative advantage. Uh, <laughs> when are you most happy? I am most happy when I'm with my family. Uh, it's, I, I'm just incredibly, the kids are great. You know, it's actually, if you had to really distill it down, I'm most happy when we're sitting around at a meal. So nowadays with the kids, the age they all are, you know, 21's our youngest, uh, just to sit around at the table, nice bottle of wine, Mel's made a beautiful meal, it's five adults now at the table. Everybody contributes. Nobody takes things overly seriously. We're happy to take the mickey out of each other. But you can have a robust debate about American politics or discuss euthanasia or talk about a whole range of issues. And I love that. And I grew up with that in my family. Mm. So to do that now, to, to now be in that role at the head of the table, proverbially, it's um, that that is, you know, I... I'm happy to sit at the table for a couple of hours if that's how dinner is going. Absolutely. My nine-year-old said to me, you know, I was dropping him at school the other day, he said, Dad, when I ask you questions about things, often you'll respond to me differently than you respond to Mum. You'll give me a simpler answer than you give her. I want you to give me the same answer that you give her. Uh, and I at thought, nine? Uh, yeah, I just, just wait till he gets to nineteen. You are in serious trouble. Exactly, but, but <laughs> I, I love I love that Sebastian is uh, is chomping at the bit to be an adult and want to be treated as an adult, and I can see that kind of the sheer joy of intellectual exchange from uh, from a per with a person you helped create. Yeah. Um, what's the most important thing you do in your life to stay mentally and physically healthy? Uh, a question which I suppose has added resonance, given that uh, your company is devoted to that goal. Um, I, uh, look, I do, I, I do enjoy food and entertainment and being with people. So, uh, you know, you've got to, you've got to stay fit. 
So I physically fit. I uh, have a gym trainer. I try to go to the gym on my own. Said to Mel, not been good lately, so I've arced up in the last month going more often. So that's really important. We've actually started doing quite a lot of walking. So we did walks in Italy. We walked the Great Ocean Walk a few months ago. Uh, we've walked in Tasmania. We're just planning our next one. And that's fantastic because mm. I'm also then the competitiveness kicks in. You know, I want to make sure I'm I'm okay at the end. So I make sure I do a lot of training. So that's good. And those walks are just great because you're away. Yes. And you're with friends who have no nothing to do with business. And it's just great to be with. Um, mentally, uh, you know, I, I, it's interesting. If I get away, like we we go down to the coast, I love going down to the coast and being by the beach and swimming. But really, it's just being with family is the thing that keeps me mentally healthy. When I'm traveling, it's it's wearing. Mm. But uh, when I'm home and I'm with Mel and we're chatting or we're with the kids or just with good friends, you know, I love it. I could sit up and chat till dawn. Do you have any guilty pleasures? Um, Sitting up and chatting to dawn, though, perhaps. That's not a guilty pleasure. That's a, <laughs> that's a requirement. Um, I... Um, I probably like, uh, you know, if I had to be really a guilty pleasure would be something I really like to eat and sitting in front of the television. That'd be, you know, Netflix has been the most dangerous creation for me in the world because <laughs> I've just, I've got like 40 TV shows linked on the like line that I just watch my way through. And, you know, you get something nice to eat and sit down in front of the telly, a block of chocolate, pack of chips or something and watch the telly. And then I go, oh, I should be doing A, B and C. So... That's that's sort of nice to do that. But honestly, just sitting, the other one would be, it's not guilty, but sitting down at gin and tonic, down at the beach, listening to the surf, phone's not ringing. That's pretty cool. It's a nice way to spend an hour. Yes. What uh, person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Um, Mum and dad, initially, you know, they, uh, it was very interesting. They, we owned a shop, we lived above the shop, they worked downstairs. So I've always had this view of mum and dad being seen as equals. Um, and, you know, uh, dad would cook the meal while mum was doing the books. Uh, dad would be downstairs on the knitting machine because we sold wool. So he'd be on the, the, the knitting machine doing cuffs and collars and stuff for people. Uh, mum would be doing something else. So I always saw them as equals. I never saw them as one or the other so that's been very helpful for me in that role but their morals stand on what was right and wrong very clear and I remember them standing up for people or friends who had problems and 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 so that was always a good good role model for me um, but I know I would be a much lesser person without Mel so she's and she's very clear very calm you know, what's right and wrong is just absolutely crystal to her. And, you know, I have some of these discussions with her and I go, crap, I should have thought of that, you know. <laughs> but, you know, she's been yeah, just gold. I'd be lost without her. Glenn Keyes, thanks for taking the time to speak today. Thanks very much, Andrew. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. If you like this podcast, can I ask you a favour? Would you mind putting something on Facebook to tell your friends? Next week, we'll be back again with another extraordinary guest talking about happiness, health and living an ethical life.